HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network since 2009. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. You're listening to Fields, the podcast. I'm Wythe Marshall. And I'm Melissa Metric. On Fields, we're bringing you the stories of people who are working in the world of urban agriculture. For money, for fun, for art, for justice, to feed the hungry, to green the city, or to uncover its history. In each episode of Fields, we'll delve into one kind of food that's grown in cities, one technology used to grow, or one project that teaches us something about our relationship to farming in urban environments. Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today. You don't need to be a farmer to enjoy this podcast, or even a foodie. We're going to tell fascinating stories and break down the realities and possible futures of urban farming to their elements. Today's episode is a little bit different than many of our episodes. It is an interview, and it is definitely about urban agriculture, uh, but the form is a little special. So for this one, Melissa Metric actually went out to Greenwood Cemetery to interview Joe Charup, who you'll hear shortly. Uh, Wythe Marshall, me, uh, I was unable to attend, so you're just going to hear Melissa. And we were also joined um, by a journalist named Elias. So uh, it's kind of a walking tour. It's got parts that are inside, parts that are outside. And it definitely is about urban ag and plants that grow in New York um, and, and fungi and animals and all sorts of great stuff. Uh, but of course, a lot of the substance of the interview, since it is at a cemetery, uh, concerns uses of land, um, particularly around, uh, you know, uh, memorialization and uh, the disposition of, of bodies, um, in addition to, of course, themes that we're, you know, more often talking about, like food. Okay, that's it. I hope you enjoy it. Bye-bye. There's wild parakeets here. In that entrance. Really? Yeah. That's so cool. if you see like green birds flying around, um, yeah, they're, they're little wild parakeets. And then there's also an area, there's a bunch of ponds. There's like, uh, or lakes. There's a koi pond. Um, yeah. And also they have like all of these different events here. Like they open up the catacombs and they have people perform in the catacombs. Like dance performances and... I once saw like opera singers and then they also do like full moon tours. 
Yeah. Done an interview in here before? No, never uh, done an interview here before. Uh, you're, you're not. <laughs> You'll be in his office. Okay. Oh, and it's just right in here. Okay. Yeah, this is the this is the yard. That's uh, two garages there. That used to be a horse uh, corral. Oh wow. This was the horse stable, and this wow. was the carriage house. Wow. Which is now uh, an office as well as the uh, tree removal and stone refinement kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah, restoration Great. and stuff like that, and uh, maintenance. My name is Joe Cherup. I'm the Vice President of Horticulture here at Greenwood. Uh, my job is really to manage the living elements of the landscape and that includes our uh, arboretum, our collaborations with other institutions, our research initiatives, our work to support biodiversity and habitat restoration here at Greenwood. Great. Yeah. And have you been here for a while or? Uh, I've been here since 2016. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's a decent. 2016, amount. 2017. Yeah. It's been, yeah. Yeah. Um, and I guess we could kind of go a little bit more into this idea of like new movements of sustainable cemeteries. I feel like that's kind of happening here. Do you want to talk about that a little? Sure. I, I think one of the, the, the foundational elements of that was established by Mount Auburn Cemetery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's the first of the rural cemeteries that um, began in this country. Um, and rural cemeteries were founded under the principle that due to various concern of overcrowding, the spread of disease, cemeteries should be located beyond the city limits in what was then the suburbs. It's essentially like... Uh, Rural is a bit of a misnomer. It was uh, suburban by location, but rural by design. And these institutions were essentially uh, the first green spaces. They predate all the public parks, all the botanic garden arboretum in this country. And they've institutionalized what we've now sort of take for granted as a quintessential American value that everyone should have access to green space. Um, even though, I mean, look, this was originally Lenape land and it was Dutch territory and then it was bought to make this rural cemetery. So th there's legacy here of um, displacement, but the idea was that this would be preserved as a green space. And the idea was that nature and its humbling force could sort of temper the spirit um, and um, assist with that. And so I think there's... A, Others have argued that the, these institutions are sort of the birth of the environmental movement in this country, these uh, rural cemeteries in general. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Um, there's, a, there's a professor at Cornell named Aaron Sachs who wrote a book called Arcadian America, and uh, he makes that argument, um, both in terms of a land conservation and from an aesthetic one. Uh, and I think cemeteries now or in the past 20 or so years have been first started by Mount Auburn really thinking about the way they treat the landscape and how important of an asset that is. Mm -hmm. And I think now other institutions like Laurel Hill in Philadelphia and Greenwood here have really sort of taken this uh, and sort of pursued it 
in a different degree. Mm-hmm. I think New York City is rare. We're, we're and, and Greenwood specifically is 478 acres. So we are the largest contiguous private landowner in New York. Wow. Um, and I think from, uh, you know, just if you could think of that acreage alone, but then consider that cemeteries account for about 4,400 acres in the city. It's about um, five and a quarter times the amount of Central Park in just in terms of acreage. Mm-hmm. And if you can consider the fact that just small tweaks to landscape maintenance there can have a lot of impact on the, on the um, communities at which these uh, institutions are located, we are our longest perimeter is about Sunset Park, which has the least amount of access to green space per capita. It's a federal poverty area. It's an environmental justice area. And we have this massive tree collection, and we want to serve as a community hub, similar to how we did at the founding of the cemetery in 1838. So I think a lot of these institutions that are now pursuing sustainable practices, whatever that means, mm-hmm more ecological awareness perhaps mm-hmm. it is also doing it because it's what the institutions were founded on one of the principles they were founded on to begin with yeah and also greenwood cemetery it seems like just the programming here like there's so much more programming and getting community involvement into the cemetery in general and then of course during covid it was i've been coming to the cemetery for a very long okay. time and during covid it it just became this huge or during quarantine, I yeah, say. yeah. It, it, um, I think people recognize the value of these green spaces in a way that they hadn't before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, and it's also interesting to to think about when this cemetery was founded, and and this was probably a rural area at that time, yeah. right in the eighteen hundreds, yeah. And how the city has, you know, built up around it almost, and how these neighborhoods have built up around it, but it is still this very large green space. And as the city has become developed, the relative ecological value of a site like Greenwood has increased exponentially. And so now with that has come a certain recognition of the responsibility to steward this landscape in a way that I think um, we're really embracing in a way now, both from an advocacy's perspective as a really large private landowner and also internally trying to model different practices here. Yeah. And when did that start shifting, do you feel? I, I think within the past 20 years, um, incrementally, and then with certain efforts specifically regarding our reduction in mowing frequency, mm. that's happened much more re- uh, recently. Um, and, you know, we've collaborated with Cornell University to sort of understand how to manage an urban grassland like Greenwood, which is, you know, although we're more known for our charismatic megaflora, like our large trees, the vegetation that has the most impact on our carbon emissions is our turf grass. And if we can figure out a way to sort of tweak that management, um, that's become sort of a focal point of the direction we're headed. Do you all ever um, test your soil to see how much carbon is in it? Like there's there's a group called, uh, have you heard of Carbon Sponge? No. So there's a group called Carbon Sponge where they've actually gone to a lot of urban farms and they give you this whole soil test kit where you could actually test 
um, you know, the carbon quote unquote in your soil. So you could test your bacteria and fungal population and see how much of it is in there. Yeah. Um, and I know also like a uh, stone barns and I'm sure Cornell is doing work like that as well of like testing to see how much life is in their soil. Yeah. So Greenwood launched a early career research award grant program in, uh, the first year, the first cohort was 2021. Um, and we gave small grants to people studying the topics of urban environmental studies and then human nature interactions. And the first year, uh, we gave a grant to a professor from Brooklyn College named Theodore Muth, who was studying the cycle soil microbiome. And he was looking at areas that were under different levels of management to see the different soil microbiome populations there. And we thought a lot about our soil and uh, how we work with it. Um, and I think how we disturb it and how we manage it here is really becoming front of mind now more than ever. Yeah. And I forget, maybe I was reading an article or an interview that you already did or something in Greenwood, but how with a lot of disturbed soil, maybe that, um, I think it's, what is it? The Kentucky bluegrass, uh, Bermuda grass, Bermuda yeah. grass likes that, likes that soil that is kind of messed with a lot and stuff like that. As do any plant that's sort of considered a weed yep. and are woody invasive plants. They just see those spots and they can colonize them well. So, I mean, yeah disturbing soil is something that's part of working in a cemetery mm -hmm. but then also thinking about the future of our soil we've been working with the um, mayor's office of environmental remediation uh, their clean soil bank mm -hmm. and uh, we had our soil tested and it came back to be a high standard so then we were able to um, recycle our soil through them as a barter to places like the Department of Transportation and other places that want soil of a certain quality that yeah. we have in abundance. Um, and so we've been able to sort of offload some of that to groups that want it. Wow, that's amazing. And that's also really great that you all are studying your soil so intently. Like, um, because I guess this sounds strange, but one of the things that I do wonder about is, you know, within the certain burial practices and all these other things and how you know, a culture or community or religion like buries their deceased if they're using chemicals within that process and how that actually would affect the soil and all these other things. So that's interesting that you all are really intently looking at your different kind of soils. Yeah. And on that note, we're, we're also sort of considering other opportunities for burial options mm -hmm. here, like green burials in which there is no embalming fluid allowed. And, and we have an area that we are just finish that's going to feature green burials within it and then in the future more green burial options i imagine will come uh, because i think that when the children of baby boomers begin to plan their parents end of life i think that's going to become a reality more mm -hmm. so than um just cremations which was sort of the standard for a long time yeah, and I saw the option for like a biodegradable urn or if. Yeah, what we're doing, uh, there's a product called um, Let Your Love Grow, which is a product that you mix with ashes to make its soil inert. And we're experimenting with different options to in order to bury ashes within uh, beneath trees and so on. It's yeah. not a formal option that we're actually just starting it because we've received inquiries on it, but, um, it's something that allows us to sort of combine tree preservation with memorialization in a way that 
we haven't before. And I think the future of the cemetery is that the importance of habitat restoration and ecological restoration is combining with the, you know, the, the opportunities to generate revenue at the same time, rather than being sort of opposing forces, there's, there's opportunities for synergy there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also on that note, I was curious if, if you all, um, there's been such a hype about the mushroom. Um, yeah. What are like burial? The cloths that are impregnated with them. I don't think we've done one of those. I yeah. don't know if we have anything opposed to it. I think there's there's something about handling um, the body here. I I, I I couldn't speak to it though. We okay. don't. We haven't done it here. I've heard of it though. Yeah. Um, and also, I I am curious about. So in doing some research on the site, there, it seems like there are so many different species of trees. And with the new grasses or the grasses that you have been putting in as more of a kind of meadow, can you just talk about these different species? And if you've noticed like the ecosystem change a little bit more or, you know, what kind of what kind of grasses are you focusing on? Like these meadow grasses or yeah. that kind of um, So first for trees, we have around 8,600 trees. Um, that's 830 species, Wow. 60 families and 162 genera. So a lot, a great deal of diversity here. And that's a lot of recent efforts to increase the diversity of our collection in order to sort of insulate it against cataclysmic loss to one specific genre or the other. Um, we focus on diversity um, and also benefit to wildlife and adaptability to urban conditions when we consider planting. We're really focused on establishing a greater um, diversity of native species here um, and we look at genera like Quercus or Oak, and we try to diversify that collection as much as possible. Um, when it comes to our meadows, what we've called our perpetual meadows are really just areas where we're reducing mowing frequency. And those are around 40 acres that you can see on that map there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we call them managed meadows. And what we've tried to do there is in the first year where we tried to do this application, we took about 200 acres out of mowing rotation. And we assumed that no one would notice when we stopped mowing it. And everyone noticed and was outraged at it. So we regrouped and we retooled. And we found areas where the, the stones are older. They're mm-hmm. closer together. They're more fragile. So that mowing in those areas can cause more damage. And we've sought to decrease the frequency from 15 times a year mowing those to between zero and four. Um, and that's a huge difference. It's a huge difference. You know, and I think what's really interesting about this whole process to me is that even those people who are sort of sensitive to environmental concerns will see an area of taller grass and have the just immediate gut reaction to think to, to be sort of repulsed by it. Maybe that's not kept. Yeah. And especially in a place like a cemetery, when one is used to a very manicured space and that typical lawn, you know. Yeah, that this, these concepts of neglect come f- forefront of mind. Whereas the truth is that that we haven't thought more about our grass than when we stop cutting it as frequently. When we were just on autopilot, cutting it all the time, 
we didn't think about it that much. Mm -hmm. It was just a vegetation that we clear, cleaned out and, and mowed. And now we're thinking about opportunities for letting the turf grass grow longer uh, and then figuring out ways to carve paths through it to allow greater visitation there. One of those areas is in the upper corner there is a place called the Hill of Graves, which we've had concerts in before and that we've found, you know, native species coming up when we stop managing the turf as um, intensely as we have in other places. And, and, you know, we've received complaints about this, but we've also received a lot of positive feedback. And if, you know, a lot owner should visit this uh, place and want access to their lot, we, we, of course, oblige them by, you know, mowing a path. But these areas are less frequently visited. And we, we strategically chose them because of that, but also because of the fragility of the stones there and the challenge to mow them, the steepness of the banks. A lot of factors went yeah. into considering this. Yeah. But when we talk about, sorry, just when we talk about like um, larger design meadows, mm -hmm. um, we have one by our historic chapel that's about three acres. It was designed by Larry Wiener Landscape Associates. Um, in 2017 was the first year and that has about 50 native species from grasses to um, shrubs and what we've seen there is that native plants that we didn't have in our collection have started to appear there um, elderberry is one of them that just I, uh, was brought in by a bird and mm -hmm. we've allowed it to continue growing there um, or it's just grown there without our permission, which is great. That's the whole point of this thing. It wasn't that we were conceiving. This is a very steep slope. Um, and it's close to the 25th street. Entrance, that's right. right. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it's a focal point. So we weren't trying to hide any of these interventions in the back 40. We want to put these up front. And I, I think the, con the, the term meadow might be misleading because there are meadow plants involved in this, but it's essentially a design perennial garden. Yeah. Um, but these ones were f focused on solving management challenges, such as having really steep areas that wouldn't be safely mowed to begin with, mm -hmm. with aesthetic changes that enhance the biodiversity of the site in a way that can be measured. I mean, like there, I, I took this note from one of these things that we were doing recently when we found that areas with native plants had the highest concentration and diversity of, of native pollinators in them as well. And I was, so, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. And in 2017, 2018, we conducted this wildlife survey, which gave us a lot of really great baseline information for which to see how these interventions were improving things here or changing them. It's interesting because, yeah, like what you're mentioning in this hillside, also you're keeping the soil from eroding. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. And, and implanting these perennials. Yeah, it's probably more carbon sequestration and also a lot of our native pollinators. I, I was just at a battery urban farm and they were talking about this. I forget what it's called, but it's like a gray and black uh, native bee that's a leaf cutter bee. And a lot of these are solitary bees that either dig in the ground or are in stems or are in little branches or something mm -hmm. like that. So in you all creating this kind of habitat, 
and not tilling it up and not doing all this other stuff, you you are creating this environment that's kind of perfect for them. Right. I don't want to sort of overlook the fact that in order to establish this, we had to kill the grass there by using herbicide. Mm-hmm. And so I think, okay. you yeah. know, the, the truth is that you have to weigh the benefits, the, co- the benefits or the challenges of using herbicide. There are other areas where we've sought to kill weeds by steaming them. Um, wow. Yeah. It just consumes a, a tremendous amount of diesel fuel. So on one hand, you're like, okay, well, this is not using herbicide, but if herbicide is can be used as a scalpel mm-hmm. um, and rather than just a broadcast spray, mm-hmm. if you can kill something and then bring it back, yeah, is that worth it? Mm-hmm. Um and I guess it's also just like, what are the traces? Are there traces of it in the soil, that kind of stuff? Or does it seem like it gets remediated pretty quickly uh, after you're planting these other? You know, I'm not a, a soil biologist, or yeah. but I would say that the, the stuff that we're planting isn't um, sterilizing the soil, in it, or the stuff that we're applying isn't sterilizing the soil. And we're only using herbicide in sort of targeted approaches, both mm-hmm. as a cut and wick strategy to control woody invasive plants mm-hmm. and um, spot spraying areas where um, we are allowing to grow longer grass, but we're trying to control the weed populations. And, and a lot of this has to do with public perception. If you see an area of longer grass, you might not be bothered by it. But if you see an area of longer grass with a few weeds popping up in it, for, for some reason, um, controlling those weeds has allowed us to continue this project in a way that I, I wasn't really... I was surprised by. I yeah. thought that it was just the long grass that would sort of turn people off, but it's the presence of weeds. It's the presence of a lack of homogeneity in the landscape that mm. the weeds, I guess, contribute to. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we're thinking about, though, and we're also working with Larry Wiener on this project, is there's an area right across from Valley Water near the front of the cemetery. Um, it's one of our two glacial ponds. And in this area, we've... Um, killed the grass there and we reseeded it with uh, different seed mixes that will each in their different seed mixes receive different levels of maintenance and so there it, it is really about monitoring the different seed mixes how they respond to different levels of care and their test plots within this room that we're evaluating with the goal of finding this holy grail vegetation that we can take from there and apply to all the areas you see in red and green. Hmm. So instead of just having tall grass, they have vegetation that um, provides more floral resources, grows to a certain height, doesn't obscure gravestones, maintains that airiness, but is more biologically complex than just taller grass. Yeah. And so the tall grass is just a placeholder, really. And I think mm-hmm. when you've been around for as long as Greenwood has, like we're, I think, comfortable with going slow and that um, whether or not some of our visitors are comfortable with it is something that I I think we recognize as part of the process. Mm -hmm. There were some people who will never be comfortable with the fact that there are areas that we're not mowing as frequently, even if it's nowhere near where their loved ones are buried. And there are those who are like, hey, we get it. We understand yeah. that in order to sort of preserve this landscape long term, you're making these certain steps that you're taking now. 
Yeah, and it kind of reminds me of like the parks department and things that they've had to deal with and just like not cleaning up the leaves or not chopping down certain areas. Yeah. And, and one of their methods was to like like clean up just the edge of it of and course. then, you know, let the inside kind of go wild. So it, it appears like there's maintenance, but absolutely. Yeah. Intentionality in these kind of interventions has been critical. I and mean, for example, the place by 25th street where there are these giant ancient mausoleums on the slope, beautiful buildings. Um, we realize that those are, you know, owned by people or were historically still are there it's there um so we mow paths to them even though the vegetation around the path might be more wild there is the sense that demonstrating that we are thinking about this is so critical in this and then as you enter the cemetery from fifth avenue you'll notice tall grass on either side mm -hmm. but you'll also notice that there's a courtesy strip being mowed on either side so that we recognize that people might want to walk there, mm -hmm. but we also want to maintain these two sides unmowed. Yeah. Yeah. And I, one of the other things that I was thinking about is just like more of the larger, uh, I don't know how to explain it, like not ethos, but just this sense of, of letting something grow wild and then letting the plants die, but leaving them there within a cemetery. And this, like, instead of this homogenous, like golf course, like, grass, just this sense of, of within the landscape showing the cycle of nature of, of like things dying yeah. and things growing back and all those other things and, and how, you know, the public, the community kind of responds to that. And it's like, well, this is what's happening here. You know, like if you don't see it or if you, if you do, or if you don't see it within nature, we decompose and all these other things happen and then life forms. And so just, I don't know, just the this larger picture that I'm thinking about is just that you all are doing that above ground or just showing this actual cycle above ground. Yeah, especially with our tree care. I mean, I think what we've done really is we approach tree care with a preservation first mindset that, you know, the trees that are doing the heavy lifting when it comes to um, ecological uplift are the largest trees. And so what we try to do is preserve trees, keep them standing for as long as possible, even if it's not in a, um, what, what someone who would be judging the aesthetics of trees um, might say their most beautiful qualities. But we think that by shrinking crowns, allowing us to sort of maintain the tree standing, that is, um, that really informs our process here. And, we also maintain certain stumps of certain species that are, uh, sorry, uh, that are on the grounds like our European beach stumps. And then these read like monuments when you're driving past them. They're, they're silver gray. Mm -hmm. well, that's the, it looks like that over there. Yeah. Um, but, you know, this species is quickly becoming um, just no longer really can grow well here because of the increased humidity, the challenges when it comes to mowing over their roots, uh, phytophthora, other beach leaf diseases. These, they're in peril, but they're also sort of a touchstone of this landscape. And so keeping these is sort of a reminder of the fact that, you know, we 
want to keep monuments to the natural heritage of this landscape just as much as we want to keep them for the the loved ones that are buried here and yeah you know what the oldest tree is here we used to have um trees that predated the cemetery we think the oldest one was a an american beach that fell in 2020 um but there are there are probably trees that are here that are as old as the cemetery certainly wow yeah and that, yeah, and I've also noticed like a lot of tulip trees that are pretty large, but yeah, the beech trees are definitely. Yeah. And the tulips are great because, you know, like they are giant sails for lightning. They get knocked over and what, what, by great, I mean, they give us an opportunity to do crown reduction, which means sort of reduce the spread of the limbs as they're extending out to allow the crown to shrink and perhaps form a new crown as a result or a new canopy. Um, and uh, they also provide great wildlife habitat. So if we can reduce risk but maintain the tree standing, even if it's functionally dead, mm -hmm. um, we try to do that. We try to remove... Um, most of our trees, if we see that they're being inhabited by, you know, a, mammal, a mammal, or we, we try to, you know, manage the tree by reducing the risk, but keeping it up. Yeah. What kind of, are there, how many, do you know how many different species of mammals are here or that live here? So part of this wildlife survey covered that. I, I, I know we have raccoons we have possum we have groundhogs we have um feral cats uh skunks yeah there are okay. two there are several large colonies around here oh wow yeah okay. um you said skunks yeah lots of skunks wow yeah huh that's interesting um and then this is not feral but um uh, can you talk about the beehives? You all still have beehives, right? Yeah. And what is that? Yeah. So um, we have a honey that we call, uh, um, my name is Skate. It's uh, the sweet hereafter. I can't believe I forgot the name. It's, it's, it's well. That's such a yeah. great name. <laughs> um, but the honey that is produced is really just given to our donors now. Okay. It, there's not enough yield. Yep. But I think the way that we look at um, honeybees here is sort of a gateway to introduce people to the peril that our native pollinators are in. And that, you know, while our honeybees provide pollination, the real bedrock of these is our native pollinators. And so what our beekeepers um, and they are private contractor beekeepers in, in the, the neighborhood, and they really focus on, education and advocacy to recognize that, you know, while uh, honeybees might be the sort of gateway drug, the, the real challenge that our native pollinators are facing is just the habitat loss, increased use of herbicides, and those are the ones that are really providing all of the pollinator services that we want here. Yeah, especially for all the trees. Right? Absolutely. That's a huge... Part of their food. Yeah, I mean, you know, not for nothing. Honeybees are an agricultural animal, mm -hmm. and um, and so we manage these um, honeybees with the sensitivity towards the fact that there are 
other bees out there that aren't as, you know, kept in a similar way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's totally And there are, you know, 416 wild bee species. We found 64 of them at Greenwood. Wow. And so activities where we're able to sort of focus on native plantings um, that where we cut back the vegetation to a foot off the ground rather than, you know, cutting it to the, the base. We're trying to create more habitat in these plantings and be th- more thoughtful about ecological restoration. Yeah, and, and also um, the environmental impacts or, you know, climate change mitigation. Some of the things that I was kind of reading about was like how much carbon you all were yeah. actually to s- were able to sequester and also like rainwater management and that type of thing within this space that it's just such a huge space. So this is from the Greenwood website. Greenwood's living collection is responsible for sequestering 264,000 pounds of carbon dioxide and removing 12,000 pounds of pollution from the air we breathe and mitigating 2,620,000 gallons of stormwater from overwhelming Brooklyn's sewage system. So that's crazy. It is. Yeah, it's a lot. Amount, and especially that we are here, we are kind of close to that waterway. Absolutely. We, um, so we're thinking a lot about our impacts on the combined sewer here. We received a $1.7 million grant from the state um, an additional funding from the city DEP to perform stormwater mitigation here. And it's a multi-pronged approach in which we're going to, at our largest water body, Sylvan Water, um, which feeds into the combined sewer, we're installing an active control there, which is essentially, um, it's a weather station with an algorithm attached to it prior to a storm event the algorithm will control this the a valve in the weir Mm -hmm. um, which is where the water is released into the combined sewer and it will release water drawing down the water body um and then shut the weir down so when the storm event comes and the combined sewers you know experiencing the combined sewer overflow events we're not contributing to that anymore or as much anymore and in our service yard, um, we're going to have underground bioretention basin, uh, underground stormwater retention that can store water during storm events and then release it after the event has passed. We're going to have bioretention basins, um, which are essentially rain gardens that are in a sewer shed that feeds into that large water bed, or watershed that feeds into that large water body. We're going to be reusing our pond water there for irrigation. Um, and so, you know, I think there are benefits to Greenwood for this. They are they're going to reduce flooding in our service yard, which does happen, but it's also clearly an acknowledgement of the fact that we have an impact on the community around us and that, you know, I think 30,000 people or so in this area are served by this sewer shed here. Mm -hmm. I might be speaking out of turn about the exact number, but just sort of considering, the work that we do here and how it impacts the public good mm-hmm. is becoming much more um, front of mind. And it's also, you know, not for nothing, there are incentives out there f- to pursue this work. Mm-hmm. There's f- city and state funding um, to support it. And we are sort of a willing and excited participant in doing this stuff here, even if it, you know, um, 
impact some of our roadways it's sort of beyond besides the point the fact that we're now um being able to check down water that would otherwise just go right into the combined sewer well and also that this is such a huge landmass and it's on the top of a hill right and so it is holding in this water that would have flooded other areas if there are huge you know rainstorm events which are becoming more and more common yeah um, so also just in that aspect. Yeah, I mean, we're the highest elevation in Brooklyn. Um, and, you know, our landscape expands from the glacial moraine to the outwash. And it's a, sort of a diverse soil makeup here. And, and yeah, considering stormwater and, and how it flows from Greenwood out, it's part of a larger thought process where like, you know, small engine motors in a cemetery, which are, you know, string trimmers, et cetera, dirty engines. It's not just the air in the cemetery that's affected, you know? And so although we have a, you know, four mile fence around our perimeter, Mm -hmm. we're ever conscious of the fact that this is, part of this community mm-hmm. and a part of the community as well. And although there might be various cultural impediments for those people who can only who only view culturally a cemetery as a cemetery, even those people can benefit from more sound ecological practices that we're employing here. Yeah. Um, All people ask, are gonna benefit from yeah. it. Yeah. We're going to have to wrap it up soon, but I'm going to ask just two more questions, Please. very different questions. Um, one is, since this is a show about urban agriculture, I do have to mention this idea of like edible. Are are there, because you mentioned elderberries, I think, yeah. like are there edible, either native or non-native varieties here? And do you ever think about implementing that in the landscape or does it just happen naturally? Or well, Two of my favorite uh, species are, are persimmon. Yeah. So Diasporus virginiana are native persimmon and pawpaws. We've planted many of them over the past few years. We're planting a lot of amelanchier. Mm-hmm. Um, I forget the common service, service berry. berry. That's right. Um, we're also planting Nantucket service berry, which is, I think, in peril. Um, and so we're not, yeah, it's, it's less about crab apples um, and more about native fruiting trees and also then allowing those plants that um, typically colonize like persimmon and then, you know, allowing them to form colonies and then going in there and selecting the ones that we can maintain that aren't on lots and so on, but allowing them sort of to naturally grow um, it's something that we think a lot about. Mm-hmm. And would these ever be allowed to be on the lots or no? No, but at this point, there's enough space where we're, we're, you know, able to plant around 400 trees a year. Wow. And, but you know, the fact is that while we plant that many trees, we lose a considerable amount due to storm pressure, et cetera. And so we really can't let off the emphasis on planting here because of how, if you walk around here, you see all these big trees, it's easy to sort of just forget that if, if you're not planting 
at a volume um, and consistently doing it, the, the big trees won't be there forever. Yeah. And it's, it's something like, a, you know, also understanding that planting trees closer together, um, creating groves, et cetera, which is evocative of how the cemetery was planted at a certain point, is better for the wildlife here as well. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, to answer your question succinctly, native uh, fruiting trees are something that we're really... We never get the fruit, though, because the squirrels tend to get it before we do. But um, we've collected seeds from pawpaws that we have here. Um, pawpaws were something that we just recently, probably the last seven years, started planting a lot of those um, yeah, when I was just at a battery urban farm, they were also planting hazelnut, which was kind of interesting. I don't know if that's a... Uh, it's Corliss... Um, no, that's not Corliss Americana. Oh, we planted pecans. Really? Yeah. Um, I, didn't, I didn't realize they could grow here. They, they, they probably couldn't. Um, but they can now. I, mean, I don't think we're going to get a bumper crop of, of pecans, but, oh. you know, it's it's a hickory species, Caria illinoisensis, and I found it from a nursery in 2020. We planted them. They're doing great. We plant a lot of hickories. I mean, oh. I, I know that those have a real benefit for wildlife. So, I mean, sorry, two last questions. Please. Um, I, I know I already said that, but... One, have you noticed um, the impacts of, of climate change affecting this landscape within, you know, you just mentioned planting pecans, or have you noticed this shift, especially of different populations of trees that are coming in? Yeah. Well, the, the migration because of climate change? Assisted species migration from human element. We, we yeah. planted a lot of live oaks, mm -hmm. um, Quercus virginiana. We originally got that seed from... Uh, the National Arboretum, which had propagated seed that was collected by Harvard, um, Arnold Arboretum and Morris Arboretum. We have a accession from the University of Richmond campus, the right next to their cafeteria. And we have these live oaks that are now semi-evergreen. Um, and um, we're planting plants like what is it? It's Pinus palastris. A lot of southeastern species um, we're seeing increasingly adapted to growing in these conditions. And we're also seeing, you know, trees that would once thrive to really suffering with the lack of colder winters like mm -hmm. pin oaks, et cetera. Mm -hmm. We're also seeing the cumulative effects of drought. Like we've lost last year we had a relatively historic drought mm -hmm. and we're seeing the effects now on some of our larger trees, which are just like not leafing out um, uh, and dying. And then trees that have been in the ground for 10 to 15 years, just dying instantly wow. in, in, the, in a matter of a growing season. Um, and so, yeah, changing the one, one benefit is it of the last year's drought was that we didn't have to mow as frequently because the grass wasn't growing, but we were able to sort of see the fact that, you know, without a consistent replenishment of our tree canopy here, um, we need to have a succession plan to sustain this canopy. So, yeah. Yeah. Last question. Please. Um, how did you get into this work? Uh, how much? Yeah, how much <laughs> no, 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 no. <laughs> I, um, I, uh, my route to sort of horticulture is relatively circuitous. I got a master's in literature and was considering going to medical school. 
uh, and was working at the geriatric psych unit at Bellevue Hospital. And my off time, I would work with a guy who had a successful patio gardening business as a way to sort of decompress. Um, and I found that being outside uh, with trees uh, made me feel much better. And so I happened to meet someone who had um, a vice president of the New York Botanical Garden who went to the School of Professional Horticulture, and I asked her where she had done her training, and she told me that school. And so the next year I applied, um, and I've been here ever since. Wow. Yeah. Incredible. I don't think I would have found horticulture if I not, had I not done other things first. Yeah. 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 And it is such a, um, yeah, just being in this green space in the buzz of this huge city and, and especially this space in general, how quiet it is and how, yeah, just surrounded by trees. Such a, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it is a place that celebrates quiet reflection. And mm-hmm. I think in ways that very few pe- places do in the city, um, and although most of my job now is in the office, yeah. the, the activities that we're doing, um, it's, it's really satisfying work. That's great. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, um, yeah, for sharing your knowledge with us and being open to this interview. And yeah, I feel like I've just learned so much more about Greenwood. I've been coming here for a very long time. Oh, really? You have? Yeah. Yeah. I oh, used well. to live down the block. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. Um, so it's so nice to kind of just see it changing and noticing like all the meadows kind of happening. And, and now that there's like a bunch of edible natives and yeah, really I, great work. Thank you. I, I think the challenge is one of the things that you mentioned is you're seeing the meadows. I think the next step for us is to really think about interpretation um, and how these things are seen by the public rather than just seeing, Oh, they're allowing the grass to grow along and feeling those feelings of neglect or whatever it is to interpret those for the public in a way that allows them to say they're not just letting the grass grow their thought behind it. Yeah. And so I think that's the next step. Yeah. And it's a landscape management yes. system. It's yeah. not just neglect. It's, it's, it seems very well thought out, especially with all of the, you know, climate change impacts and, and just loss of species and biodiversity in general. And it, it just seems very thoughtful. Thank so. you. Yeah. I'll walk you guys out. See this path here that goes up along the side? Mm-hmm. I, I received a, a, a call from a lot owner who is buried in this, whose great-grandmother is buried in this section and really wanted to visit it. And at first she was sort of outraged about why we were mowing. And when I spoke to her, she um, sort of was converted into this line of thinking that these efforts can have benefits throughout the grounds, but also that, you know, we're still able to visit our loved ones and we just motor a path and we keep the path maintained and we're able to keep the rest of the area high. And so it's a win-win. So we are in our service yard parking lot um, and we have our old soil pile there on the right that giant mound, which is sort of a hallmark of cemeteries because of the digging and moving soil around. Um, And 
we have this area here, which is one of the areas where we steamed uh, to control weeds. Uh, and then we reseeded it with a native mix of different species. Now we're walking under our, the Fifth Avenue viaduct here. Bamboo. Yeah, what's interesting about this bamboo is that it's dying, which is like something that, you know, bamboo seems to refuse to do. Yeah. So I took a bunch of samples of it last week and I sent it to Cornell. Do you all have a lot of linden trees? We do have a lot. This area, we can see some of the new plantings that we've been doing. And we're really trying to capitalize on almost every any available space that can't be used for burial purposes, or perhaps it could be, but we're still able to plant there. So this is one of our, you know, one of my favorite native trees. This is a sour wood. Um, and we tend to plant small because we have better success rate with keeping them alive. But we're also employing uh, interventions like this one, which you can't see until we get around this side of this tree, but this is an old calorie pear, which are sort of decrepit, falling apart. But again, this is a really old tree. And rather than, you know, let it collapse, we've started instituting props like this one, sort of to hold up a long lateral limb that could otherwise break and cause the tree to fall apart. These are actually um, pieces of hemlock from Myelin's Ghost Forest in Madison Square Park. So we've worked with an arborist named Bill Logan, whose company um, has helped us install these. And through there, that, that's one of the Yeah, that meadows? is one of the uh, perpetual meadows. Can, uh, can you describe, can you guys describe what you're saying? Yeah, it, it looks like... Um, a grassland, um, seed heads, um, and it moves in the wind in a way that shorter turf grass doesn't. Yeah, so I think we're going to wrap it up. Um, uh, this is Melissa Metric from Fields. Um, thank you so much for listening to this episode, and we will catch you later. Fields is powered by Riverside. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradio.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.